0: Skinny man died of a big disease. And good morning. Welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a bi weekly show that looks at local media, news, and local newsmakers. Today, my guest live in the studio is Attorney Les Marston. Two local Pomo tribes have just won a David and Goliath ruling in the Ninth District Court of Appeals against the state of California over the state's bad faith negotiation of their gaming compacts. Les is the lead attorney on the case and will discuss the state and national significance of the efforts by the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians and Robinson Rancheria, among a handful of other tribes who fought back against the state of California and won. But first, I have a few updates on stories we've been following here on KZYX. This has been a huge news week here in Mendocino County. For starters, the company that owns the skunk train in Fort Bragg, Mendocino Railway, filed a federal lawsuit against the California Coastal Commission in the city of Fort Bragg on August 9th. uh, The lawsuit seeks to prohibit the Coastal Commission and the city from enforcing permitting requirements for railroad-related development. The company says it does not intend to comply with those requirements, and they continue to assert that they are a federally regulated public utility that's not required to adhere to these local permitting laws. The Coastal Commission obviously disagrees with that, but until now has not taken strong steps to regulate the skunk train. They replied to the Mendocino Railway lawsuit by sending a letter to them citing several incidents of unpermitted development on and near the former mill site uh, and demanding that the company cease all unpermitted development and provide a full description of all of their development activities by August 26th. The Coastal Commission threatened to impose substantial monetary penalties if Mendocino Railway does not comply. The Press Democrat reported that fines could total $11,500 per day. The city of Fort Bragg has its own lawsuit against Mendocino Railway filed last October, seeking to establish its authority over the GP mill site development, arguing that the skunk train is not a public utility and therefore not subject to the federal exemptions to regulations, nor does it have the power of eminent domain. Last year, Mendocino Railway used uh, its claimed public utility status and the power of eminent domain to negotiate the purchase of 210 acres of the former Georgia Pacific mill site in Fort Bragg. The judge in Fort Bragg's lawsuit agreed with the city of Fort Bragg that the skunk train does not qualify as a utility. And that decision is being appealed. In the meantime, the railroad has filed a plan with the Surface Transportation Board to rehabilitate 13 miles of the North Coast Railroad to ship gravel, ostensibly, ostensibly to bolster their claims that they're not just a local tourist train, but they also carry freight in the form of gravel and connect to a larger rail system. The North Coast Railroad line is being turned into the Great Redwood Trail. That's a project championed by State Senator Mike McGuire to turn the old railway line into a hiking and biking trail. So the skunk train has also kind of pissed off the trail folks by jeopardizing those plans. The latest news in the saga of the skunk train happened last Friday. The California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, sent a letter to Mendocino Railway weighing in with their own determination that the company is not a public utility. Mendocino Railway's Mike Hart had written a letter to the CPUC in late July asking them to affirm that Mendocino Railway is a regulated public utility. Well, the CPUC wrote back to to that uh, Mendocino Railway's tourist excursion train is actually not a public utility. There was a report that CPUC investigators were actually on site at the skunk train station in Fort Bragg on Tuesday this week. I haven't been able to confirm that. The CPUC letter is probably good news for John Meyer of Willits, who's fighting an eminent domain lawsuit brought by Mendocino Railway to take 20 acres of his land for their operations in Willits. That trial starts Tuesday, August 23rd in Ukiah. So in addition to John Meyer's legal fight with the skunk train, there's a lot going on in the Ukiah courthouse next week, and most of it has to do with the culture of violence at the Ukiah Police Department that I reported on last month. In the case of former police chief Noble Weidleck, who's facing a civil suit by his ex-fiancee Amanda Corley for domestic violence, Corley has settled her claims with the county of Mendocino. This leaves Weidleck as the sole defendant as the case moves forward. KZYX News' Sarah Reith interviewed Amanda Corley about the case for the KZYX News this morning, which you just heard at 845, and she will have a longer excerpt of their conversation for our Friday evening newscast tonight at six o'clock. This week, we'll also see the sentencing hearing for Kevin Murray, the former Ukiah police sergeant who was charged with seven felonies and one misdemeanor, including sexual battery rape and burglary, but pled no contest to one felony and one misdemeanor at a pretrial conference in July. He's facing two years felony probation or the possibility of three or four years in jail. A group um, of locals has called for a public protest on Tuesday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Ukiah Courthouse to draw attention to what they say is, quote, an insult to all the people of Mendocino County and that they do not consent to the dismissal of the most serious charges against Murray in that plea bargain. So that's happening Tuesday at the Ukiah Courthouse. And the city of Ukiah's criminal case against Arturo Valdez will have a pretrial hearing today in Ukiah. Arturo Valdez is being prosecuted by the DA's office for driving under the influence, child endangerment, and resisting arrest. Arturo Valdez himself has filed a federal lawsuit against officers of the Ukiah Police Department for brutally beating him at his home on March 28, 2021. The officers had come there seeking information about a fender bender that took place earlier that day in the parking lot at the Ross department store in Ukiah. Arturo's lawyer says it's impossible for the police to prove whether or not he was under the influence for that fender bender when police believe the children were in the car because officers met him at his home sometime after the time of the collision. And he's skeptical about claims that Valdez was resisting arrest because he says his client wasn't being arrested when the beating took place. At the last preliminary hearing, uh, officers pled the fifth and refused to answer questions from Valdez's attorney, which calls into question how the city's criminal case against Arturo will proceed. Sarah Reith will have an update on today's hearing tonight at six o'clock on the local news and more in-depth reporting on the case of Arturo Valdez next week. You can hear the KZYX News every weekday at 745 and 845 in the morning and again at 6 p.m or subscribe to the KZYX News podcast to hear all of that coverage. Finally, in this big news week, there's news about the Potter Valley Project. According to reporting in the Mendocino Voice, on Monday, five conservation and fishing groups filed a federal lawsuit against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, over the Endangered Species Act violations in operating the Potter Valley Project. The Potter Valley Project is a century-old hydroelectric electric plant that diverts water from the Eel River into the Russian River through two dams at Van Arsdale Reservoir and Lake Pillsbury. PG&E owns the project and is currently decommissioning it. The Mendo Voice reports that the five groups, Friends of the Eel River, California Trout, Trout Unlimited, Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, and the Institute for Fisheries Resources, sued FERC and the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Hmm. They say that since the dams are no longer licensed by FERC as a hydroelectric project, the project's conditions for take, or their allowance to harm protected Chinook salmon and steelhead trout populations in order to produce electricity, as part of the Endangered Species Act gives, gives them the right to harm species. They say that these These rights are no longer allowed. The lawsuit alleges the agency violated the Endangered Species Act by failing to develop license terms to protect native fish, while plans are prepared to decommission the Potter Valley Project's two dams on the Eel River. The lawsuit asks the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to modify the annual license FERC recently issued for the project in order to comply with the Endangered Species Act. The groups have also filed a notice of intent to sue pg for harming fish in the Eel River, but so far, FERC is the only defendant. So, that's your headline news for the week. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Stay tuned next for a conversation with attorney Les Marston about Indian gaming and two local tribes David and Goliath appeals court victory against the state of California. <laughs> Out the towns Wear satin gowns And I be in frame Loretta
1: Lynn Guides my hands Through the radio Where would I be In times like these Without the
0: songs Loretta wrote Cause when you Can't find a friend You still got
1: the radio When you Can't find a friend You still got the radio The radio Oh, listen to the radio Radio. Oh, listen to the radio. Radio. This is Byline
0: Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Stay tuned now for a conversation with Les Marston. Uh, he is a, a local attorney who's just won a crucial ruling in the Ninth District Court of Appeals that found the state of California was negotiating in bad faith with five Indian tribes around their Indian gaming compacts. Indian gaming is a high-profile subject this year because of two state ballot initiatives coming up for vote in the November midterm elections and a whole lot of political advertising out there about them. But tribes in California have fought for decades with the state and federal governments to assert their sovereign rights as nations to regulate gaming on their tribal lands, free of interference by state governments. This latest decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upholds the claims by five tribes that the state can't negotiate for regulations on issues that are not directly related to gaming. Two of those tribes are right here in Mendocino and Lake Counties, Hopland Band of Pomo Indians, and Robinson Rancheria, who are punching way beyond their weight in this fight. Les Marston is the lead attorney in the case and is here to explain what the ruling means. Good morning, Les.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for coming in live to into the studio here. This is really fun to have you. Can you start by just talking about a little bit about who you are and and what your legal practice does?
1: I'm a California Kuya Indian. I've been practicing in the area of federal Indian law for 45 years. You just thought I was young and handsome. Um, My uh, practice uh, started with California Indian Legal Services, which is a statewide legal aid organization that provides free legal services to Indian tribes and Indians that meet income eligibility guidelines. Uh, I I was with them for 17 years, and then I embarked upon my own uh, private practice um, sharing offices with David Rapport, the city attorney for the city of Ukiah.
0: So you work... Out of downtown Ukiah? I do. And when did you start your practice in Ukiah?
1: I moved up here in September of 1979.
0: Oh, okay. So you've been here a little while. And from the sound of things, you've been involved in many of these historic cases, um, asserting sovereignty through the legal system around gaming and um, land use and tribal rights, all of these things. But right now we want to talk about uh, this this victory in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So can you just introduce listeners to what the ruling was and, and why it matters?
1: Well, it's a game changer. Uh, it has nationwide implications, and it uh, changed the balance of power in negotiations between tribes and the governor in the state of California. The state was in a position of power and authority a position to be able to dictate to tribes what they had to put into their gaming compacts. And this leveled the playing field. So now it really is two equal governments, sovereign tribal governments, coming to the table and sit, sitting across the table with a governor. Um, the, what a lot of people don't know is that in 1988, Congress enacted a law And they allowed states to be able to play a role in gaming that occurs on Indian reservations. And uh, under the federal law, which is called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which people commonly refer to as the IGRA, uh, Congress said that if the tribes want to play the more lucrative uh, Vegas casino-style games, they have to have an agreement with with the state. And if they can't get that agreement with the state, then they can't offer their games. Here in California, with the passage of Proposition 1A, the people of the state of California said that Indian tribes could have the exclusive right to operate and play slot machines and house bank and percentage card games. But again, even though the people said tribes could play those games, they can't play them on their reservations unless they have an agreement with the state.
0: Interesting. So the state, so gambling like Las Vegas or, you know, Nevada style gambling is not legal in the state of California, but tribes are able to legally operate casinos with that kind of gambling or gaming because of this, because of their sovereign status, but also because of the, of IGRA and the federal law that that recognizes their sovereignty over that.
1: This case actually started back in the early 1980s when Indian tribes sued the state of California over whether the, the state had the right to regulate high-stakes bingo games and, and card games on the reservation. And the United States Supreme Court held that the state had no jurisdiction, had no authority. To enforce any of their state laws against the tribes on the reservation with respect to gaming. And so, of course, the states went complaining to Congress, uh, stating that, gosh, Congress, you got to step in, you got to regulate this gaming on Indian reservations. Otherwise, you know, the mafia is going to get involved and there's going to be organized crime. And so, Congress enacted this law regulating uh, gaming on Indian reservations. And for the first time, gave to the state something that the supreme court said they didn't have and that is the authority to negotiate for the imposition of uh, an application of certain state laws on the reservation that the tribes would have to be have to comply with but what congress said is those state laws had to be directly related to the operation of gaming activities now that's a direct quote out of the federal statute and so in our case, the issue was, well, what the heck is directly related to the operation of gaming activities? The state of California took the position that but for the casino and the revenue that's generated f- from the casino, you wouldn't have people driving to the reservations. So they had the right to require the tribes to um, comply with California environmental laws. You wouldn't have people coming into this casino, so if they slipped and fell, the state could impose all of its personal injury laws against the tribes. The, st- the state was even going as far as to require or demand that the tribes recognize and enforce state court spousal support and child support orders. Now, those are all uh, you know noble causes, but the issue is, what did Congress... Specifically authorize the state to be able to negotiate over, and that's what our lawsuit was about. And so you have to ask yourself, for example, if I'm a cook in the uh, casino restaurant, uh, and every day I drive to the to the restaurant, and I park in the back, and I walk in, and I and I I, I cooks you know meals, and then I leave. What does that have to do with the playing of the games on the casino floor? So what, this, what the Ninth Circuit said is there has to be a direct connection. There ha, you know, if, uh, so if a, a, an individual is driving down the highway and his little boy has to go to the bathroom, and they pull off and they run into the casino, and when he runs into the casino he slips and falls, is that directly connected with the playing of the games, as opposed to I'm a patron, I come in to play the games, and as I walk up to pull the handle on the on the uh, on the slot machine, the the stool I'm sitting in is collapse collapsing. Well, that is directly related, and that patron ought to be able to have be able to file claims and have remedies against the tribe. So it may sound like we're splitting hairs here, (laughs) but it's a hair that uh, we have to split. Because again, normally state laws don't apply to tribes on the reservation. And so Congress enacted this law allowing the state to negotiate over the application of certain state laws. But Congress said, look, this isn't the opening up the floodgates to allow the states to enforce all their laws against the tribes. It's only those laws that are directly connected to the playing of the casino games on the casino floor.
0: And this has much larger implications. It's not, as you're describing it, it's not a fight with the state about the tribe's ability to make money, although that is part of it, of course, but it really is one of those flashpoints where you're fighting for sovereignty, right? It's where what sovereignty is for tribal nations is defined through the way that the state wants to come in and impose its regulatory authority on the tribes. And it's not—the other thing you're talking about with, like, the state laws about these non-gaming-related issues, it's not that there's no regulation there. It's tribal (laughs) regulation, not state regulation, right?
1: Well— Indian gaming is the most regulated gaming in the United States. There's first there's the National Indian Gaming Commission that has general oversight authority that regulates the casinos. Then the tribes themselves uh, are required both by their compacts and by the National Indian Gaming Commission's regulations to have a gaming commission, and that and those uh, gaming commissions have to promulgate uh, regulations um, that uh govern every single aspect of what occurs on the casino floor. Nothing happens in a casino by accident and everything that happens in the casino is under surveillance cameras and is being watched. So uh, if you go to Las Vegas for example, and go into uh, the wind Casino, you'll be that casino will be lucky if it sees a Nevada regulator once or twice a year. Gaming in, in Indian casinos, the gaming commissioners are in the casino every, literally every single day. So, um, and they've established rules for, for example, for how the games are played. There's specific rules, just for example, for. Where the dealer of the a, of a blackjack game has to keep their hands, right? They have to keep them on top of the table so the surveillance cameras can see them all the time. They have to shuffle the cards a certain way. They have to deal the cards a certain way. Those are called minimum internal control standards, uh, and... Uh, You've got surveillance personnel that are constantly looking 24-7 as to whether or not there's deviation from those minimum internal control standards to ensure the fairness of the playing of the games. Now, Indian casinos are the most highly regulated industry probably of any business in the United States.
0: Why is that, Les?
1: Well, I I'd like to say because the tribes themselves are responsible tribal governments. They want to they make sure no criminal activity is taking place, no one with criminal backgrounds are involved in the gaming, that the games are played fairly, and that the money that's uh, wagered uh, and is won or is lost is um, properly counted and accounted for so that the tribes are insured of receiving all of the profits from the gaming operation that they're entitled to, and, the, and it's the tribes that own and operate the casino, and all of the revenue goes to the tribal governments They don't go to individual Indians, they go to the tribal governments, and those tribal governments, just like local city councils and board of supervisors, adopt budgets and determine how that money is going to be spent, and all the tribes spend their money to provide essential governmental services on the reservation. For those tribes that have had good locations, gaming has been a godsend. It has literally lifted tribes and tribal people out of poverty. It's provided... Safe and sanitary housing. It's provided employment. It's employment paying a living wage. It literally has been a godsend for uh, Indian people and Indian tribes with good locations.
0: Well, and the ca- the case that you just got the appeals ruling in is a ca- is not a case with. The large tribes. It's, it's it's a case of five smaller tribes, including Hopland and Robinson Rancheria. Can you talk about specifically why you filed the appeal and what was happening? That the appeals court found that the state of California was negotiating these five compacts in bad faith. So, what what happened? Why did what? How did we get to this point?
1: Well, well, first of all, this is a real Cinderella story, a real David and Goliath story, right? Um, it wasn't. The, it wasn't tribes with very large casinos like the, some of the tribes down in Southern California. The Agua Caliente, for example, that have casino casinos in Palm Springs. They generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Did they sue? No. You know, Hopland's Casino, unfortunately, right now isn't even open, right? Um Robinson has a modest casino, very nice, but modest casino. All of these tribes generally operate uh, casinos with uh, less than 350 slot machines. And, uh, but yet it was these tribes that drew the line in the sand and just simply said, we think this is illegal. We think that it infringes on the, our right to enact our own laws, and to govern ourselves on our reservations, our sovereignty, and we're gonna fight. You know, and and the litigation is not cheap. You know, justice may be blind, but it's, it's not swift, and it's not cheap. And these tribes came together, pulled their resources, and they just said, enough is enough, and they filed suit.
0: This was after years of California Coming to these negotiations with nothing, basically.
1: Well, well, let's look at the big picture, right? Because what um, when Congress enacted this, remember when I, I spoke about this federal law that cut the state in uh, into the picture. Congre- That's Igra. The yes, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Congress prov- put into the law a provision that said that. Yes, the tribes have to get these agreements from the state. Yes, the parties have to negotiate. But if the states negotiate in bad faith, the tribes can have a remedy. They can file suit in federal court. A few years after that law was enacted, uh, a case was brought in Florida, and it worked its way all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the, and the United States Supreme Court said that that provision— that allowed tribes to be able to sue the states was invalid. That the Congress didn't have the authority to waive the state's immunity from suit under the 11th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So tribes were now in the position that they had to get these agreements from the states in order to play the lucrative casino games but if the st- state dug its heels in and demanded things from the tribes that they had no right to demand, the tribes had no remedy. They couldn't sue. Now, here in California, when Governor Pete Wilson refused to negotiate with the tribes, the, the tribes uh, took their case to the people of the state of California with, a, with uh, Proposition 1A and Proposition 5. And so one of the things that the people of the state of California said in those propositions is, no, we're going to allow the tribes to have their remedy. So they waived the state's 11th Amendment immunity from suit here in California. So tribes here in California can sue for bad faith. So all the other tribes in the United States have been watching this case because they can't sue. They haven't been able to get the determination as to whether the state laws that the state's trying to enforce on the tribes, that the state has a right to do it. Here in California, the tribes could sue, and they did sue, and in this case, they won.
0: What is bad faith by the state of California? What does that look like?
1: Well, the Ninth Circuit Court, that's one of the things that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had to determine, and what they said was, in the federal law, Congress put together a list of items that the state could negotiate over. And what the Ninth Circuit said is if the state comes in and demands that the tribes negotiate over some topic, some subject that is not in the enumerated list, that's bad faith. And so that's what happened here. The tribes, back in 1999, right after the passage of Proposition 1A, Uh, Governor Gray Davis went to the table and he negotiated gaming compacts with 64 Indian tribes in the state, commonly referred to as the 1999 compacts. Those compacts all had a term of 20 years, and all of those compacts um, were due to expire in 2020. So literally four years prior to the expiration date, a group of, tri- of tribes, approximately 28 tribes, um, calling themselves the uh, 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 tri- uh, Compact Tribes Steering Committee, uh, requested negotiations with the governor, went to the table, and started negotiating compacts. And immediately, the governor took the position that the tribes had to uh, agree to seven Uh, laws, state laws, the application of seven state laws on their reservation that the tribes believed were not directly connected um, to the playing of the games on the casino floor, flew out uh, or um, fell outside of the enumerated subjects that Congress said, uh, that, that Congress placed a limitation on the states and said that it's only these subjects you can negotiate over.
0: Because they could use the fact that there are casinos on reservations to as like a way to shoehorn in and and start to really chip away at tribe so, tribal sovereignty, right? They could say, "Well, you know, whatever environmental laws or um, like like you said, this, these seven extra things that they were trying to negotiate about. What kinds of
1: things were they? Well, we call it mission creep, right?" <laughs> the, the state got its foot into the door with the passage of the federal law, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. The states knew they were in a powerful position because um, they could just, as they tried to do here, keep the tribes at the table, right, negotiating, refusing to give in, and just continuing to push across the table the the exact same uh, compact with the exact same illegal provisions, Knowing that they were running, the state was running out the clock because the tribes' compacts were going to expire, right? And if the tribes' compacts expire, they they'd have to shut their casinos down. They can't play the the slot machines or that or the house-banked or percentage card games without the agreement. And if they tried to continue to operate. Without a compact, then that's a violation of federal law. And the Justice Department, the federal government, would step in and file suit against the tribes in federal court and shut them down. So the state knew that it could just stay at the table and keep, every time the tribes made an offer, tried to negotiate over a particular point, the state would just smile and say, well, we hear what you're saying, but here's our proposal. And they just kept shoving the same compact across the table for four years. And finally, the tribes just said, enough's enough.
0: And this started in 2015, right? Four years before the compact was set to expire. Yes. So f- f- five years of just like, this is the same piece of paper. It's like getting yellowed, has coffee stains on it, starting to fray. And they're just pushing this thing over the table at you guys?
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you're talking about labor negotiations, good faith, that means that you have to at least, in in good faith, consider the other side's proposals negotiate over wording you know there has to be a give and take here the tribes kept submitting proposals trying to reach a compromise and the state would just take the tribes proposals and then send the exact same uh proposal that they originally submitted back in 2015 when the negotiations first started
0: it seems kind of insulting how did how did tribal negotiators react to that were they just like tearing their hair out were they so frustrated
1: well um First of all, uh, the state's tactic was pretty successful because a number of the tribes for um, new tribes um, who didn't have casinos, who every day that went by that they didn't have an agreement and didn't have a casino up and operating, were losing, you know, hundreds of thousands and in some case millions of dollars of revenue so they they just you know, capitulated and gave in to the state's demand. Now, one of the things that um, was helpful in our case was once we won in the district court because the federal judge is in the federal district court out of Sacramento held that the state had engaged in bad faith, and that these seven provisions were illegal. once we got that ruling out of the district court, the Secretary of the Interior all of a sudden got a real, you know, her, her back straightened up and she got a real strong spine um, and started disapproving these compacts. Because even if the state and the tribes reach agreement, the compacts have to go back and be approved by the Secretary of the Interior before they become effective. So once we won in the district court, the, the, the governor started submitting compacts. That he had entered into with tribes that had these illegal provisions in them, and they came back to the secretary, and the secretary said, "No, based on Judge Ishii's decision, I'm not going to approve them. I'm going to reject them."
0: So that's Deb Halland, who is herself Native American.
1: Correct, and her uh, and the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, Brian Newland, who's also Indian.
0: And okay, so they then started to step in for the tribes. To d- were the tribes able to renegotiate and get rid of those provisions?
1: No, the the, the, the the governor, even to this day, has has refused to, uh, with regards to my clients anyway, the five tribes that I represent, take those provisions out. Interesting, now, and he- and
0: they're not backing down even with this appeals court ruling, right? They are continuing to fight the tribes in the court in court.
1: So what happens is, um, the state has a right to petition the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for rehearing. If the Ninth Circuit denies that petition, and I believe they will, then the case goes back to the district court. And under the federal law that Congress enacted, a mediator gets appointed. And he asks each of the parties, the state and the tribes, to submit their last best compact offer to the mediator. And the mediator, it's baseball arbitration, the mediator has to pick one. He doesn't get to. Take Section 5 out of the states and Section 20 out of the tribes. He has to pick one of them or the, or the other, the tribes or the state. And he's, under the law, he's required to pick the compact that first fulfills the purposes for, for which Congress enacted the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Which was to allow tribes to get involved in gaming and to own and operate casinos that would generate revenue to provide essential governmental services on the reservation. And also, he's to pick the compact that best complies with the Ninth Circuit's decision and Judge Ishii's decision. So, if he picks the states, that's it, that's the compact, it's over. If he picks the tribes, he offers it to the state and the state has 60 days within which to make up its mind whether it's going to take it. If the state takes it, that's it. It's over. That's the compact. It's the tribe's compact. If the state doesn't, then the tribes get to cut the state out of the out of the process. They get to go back to Washington, D.C. and sit down with Deb Harlan and negotiate their compact with the Secretary of the Interior. So that's where we're at right now. We're the... The uh, uh, Ninth Circuit has until, um, I, if I recall, September 15th to rule on the petitions for rehearing. We currently have our motion in front of Judge Ishii to appoint a mediator, and we're waiting for Judge Ishii to appoint the mediator. What I think he's waiting to see if the Ninth Circuit's going to deny the petitions. If they do, then we're back in front of Ishii. We'll get our mediator appointed, and I'm pretty confident we'll be able to convince the mediator that our compact's the one that, that the mediator should select. It'll be really interesting to see at that point whether the state accepts it. I don't think they will. So I'm anticipating I'm going to be going back to D.C. to negotiate the tribes' compacts. With Sitting the down J. with
0: Deb Halland. <laughs> Um, Well, this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. My guest today is Ukiah attorney Les Marston, who's just won a ruling in the Ninth District Court of Appeals, found that the state of California was negotiating in in bad faith with five Indian tribes around their Indian gaming compacts, including two local tribes, Robinson Rancheria and the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. Les, why is the state of California pushing so hard against the tribes to inject more regulation by the state why are they behaving this way toward the tribes
1: it's a turf war it really is and and california the you know the probably the most powerful state in the union you know if it was a country it'd be, it would have the sixth largest economy in the world it has a huge budget it has a whole uh, Indian section or division within the attorney general's office with loads of deputy attorney generals to fight the tribes. Um, All you have to look, California has one of the worst uh, uh, records when it comes to Indian people in the United States. You know, we we, we think that (laughs) <laughs> you know, we think the U.S. cavalry went out and, you know, in the, and the Indian Wars were fought in, in the Plains and in South Dakota and, and Nebraska. No, the worst Indian fighting occurred right here in California. The largest genocide against any group of Indian people occurred right here in the state of California. I mean, the very first act of... The first Supreme Court Justice Justice Hastings was to go to the state legislature and request money so he could raise a militia to go to the Eden Valley right here in Mendocino County and kill all the Indians. You know, California was one of the first states to put a bounty on the heads of Indian men, women, and children. You brought He <laughs> brought in an Indian scalp and you got paid. So you know, despite the fact that Governor Newsom, you know, apologized to, to California Indians for the genocide. Uh, the fact of the matter is California has been fighting a war against Indian tribes over which government would have the right to enact laws and enforce those laws against persons and property on the reservations since this state became a state in 1850. I mean, my, I have spent my entire legal career uh, bringing lawsuits against uh, the state of California, in some cases the federal government for breach of their their trust obligations that they owe to Indians under the law and the Constitution, uh, and against uh, cities and counties who you know have wanted to enforce their laws as well against tribes on the reservation. These tribes, I mean, I mean, you have to give them credit. These four of these tribes didn't even exist. In 1980, the United States government illegally terminated their reservation land and their and their governmental status. They had to sue the United Dave Rapport and I sued the United States government uh, uh, over that termination process, and the federal courts ruled that that the uh, United States government violated federal law breached their trust obligation to these indian people and they illegally terminated it but by the time we got that court ruling most of the these four indian tribes had lost almost all of their land within the boundaries of the reservation they had no government they had to reorganize their governments they had no businesses on the reservation and and their people were mired in poverty yet as a result of gaming and 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 their and their fight to hold on to their sovereignty—they've, they, you know, they've turned things around. I mean, you go to up to Blue Lake, and there was just nothing on that reservation. And now you go up there, and they got a police department, they got a fire department. You know, you look at all the good things they're doing. You go sit down with uh, Chairman uh, Cromwell, Benai Cromwell out of Robinson, and and listen to him talk about all the good things that they're doing on the reservation. Uh, you know, they have a hotel, they've got a business there. They operate a, you know, a, a clean, non-polluting business. And, uh, even the ill, the ills of illegal gambling, the tribes do a really good job at addressing illegal gambling, on uh, illegal gambling. I'm sorry. Uh, gambling addiction, address gambling addiction on the reservations. Um, uh, you know, in the Las Vegas casinos, uh, uh, probably, um, Based on the studies that I've seen, three to four percent of the patrons that go into the casinos in Las Vegas have some type of gambling addiction problem. The tribes have that number down to about one percent. Um, they know it's a problem and they address it and they have programs available to, you know, to help those that have that problem. So, you know, <laughs> these four tribes, it really is a Cinderella story, right?
0: Rags to riches
1: not riches but but drags
0: uh, to middle class existence
1: <laughs> well yeah, i mean even look at the uh, covalo indian community up in round valley they have a, a small little gaming operation for the tribes if 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 all the casino does is employ 26 people and pay those 26 people a living wage that they can then put back into the local reservation economy that's a success as far as i'm concerned and uh, and uh, casinos like Blue Lake and Robinson, they do far more than that. They not only employ their people, but they generate revenue and that the tribe used to provide essential services on the reservation. So, its you know, uh, as I said, for those that have good locations, gaming has really been a godsend.
0: So can you help contextualize then all of the political ads that we're seeing with, you know, beautiful landscapes and tribal members pleading with voters to vote yes or no on these state propositions. How do voters make sense of all of this and know you know, how to understand what they're seeing in these political ads?
1: Th- this is an oversimplification. But Proposition 26 simply allows the tribes to play an additional game in their casinos, sportsbook. Just like they play blackjack, you, you go into their land-based casino, and if Proposition uh, um, 26 passes, there'll be an additional game you'll be able to play. That's all. And so it benefits all tribes, and it benefits all tribes in the state of California because it benefits the tribes that operate casinos, and, and the tribes uh, back in 1999 agreed to share their gaming revenue with those tribes who don't have casinos. So in the state of California, under the compacts, there are what are called gaming tribes and there are non-gaming tribes. And the non-gaming tribes are tribes that operate 349 slot machines or less. And so the tribes that operate casinos with 350 machines or more they pay a percentage of their revenue into what's called the Revenue Sharing Trust Fund. And that Revenue Sharing Trust Fund then gets distributed by the state of California out to the non-gaming tribes. And it's uh, it's at the distributions are averaging about $1.1 million a year to those non-gaming tribes. Per tribe? So, per tribe. So Proposition 26 will benefit all tribes. Proposition 27 Um, uh, um, and me personally, I'm voting for 26. I'm voting against 27 because I believe in my opinion, 27 is bad for Indian tribes. It, it allows any person within the state who can access the internet to be able to gamble. It allows for internet gaming. So the first thing that does is it takes gaming out of the land-based casinos and puts it into your living room, right? It allows whoever's playing those games and offering those games to compete with the Indian tribes in their land-based casinos. Now, the tribes, <laughs> to, to be able to engage in Internet gaming, you have to have a certain platform. I mean, it's, these are very complex platforms, right? Because th- that platform, if if I'm a wager and I'm sitting in my living room and I want to place a bet, that platform has to be able to, you know, screen me, make sure I'm over 18 years of age or 21, depending on, on the law. It has to accept my bet. It has to determine, you know, Place that bet on the particular type of sporting event that's being offered. You know, it has to explain the odds. These are very complex. Um, you, you know, I, I'm calling up platforms, but it's you know, it's com- it's computerized electronic data platforms. Okay, and those platforms have been copyrighted, and there's only a few companies in the United States. Um, uh, the vast majority of are located outside the state of California that have the ability to offer those platforms. And so what's happening here is those companies that have the ability to offer those platforms have sponsored this initiative. Have they said they're going to contract with a tribe to work through a tribe or tribe's To be you know they they have to have an agreement with the tribe or tribes to be able to offer those platforms yes but they only have to do it with one tribe there's no guarantee that any other tribe other than the tribe that they contract with to offer that platform is going to benefit from the gaming and it's going to provide direct competition to the tribes land-based casinos i don't think it's good i think as a result of it tribes in the state of california are going to lose revenue Uh, and it allows for internet gaming I think that, you know, it was really clear back in um, back in 1999 with the passage of Proposition 1A that the people of the state of California said a couple of things. Number one, they said, we don't want California to become Las Vegas. We don't want that. Number two, they were happy with the level of gaming that was going on in the state at that time. Gaming in Indian casinos. Counties can offer charitable bingo. They can do, um, you know, non-bank card games you know there could be horse racing they said that's enough we're happy with that we don't want to see any more and this will really in my opinion open up the floodgates
0: and it kind of it uses the fact that tribes do gaming right but it's not for tribal gaming it's for every it's for the introduction of internet gaming into the state of california
1: that is correct
0: interesting thank you so that's proposition 27
1: 27
0: and Proposition 26 is the one that allows people to come into casinos and place sports bets. Right. Which is interesting is when I lived in England, that's really common. There's like betting sites oh, sure. like on every corner basically. And you'll you, you, wonder like that's a lot of gambling. Yeah,
1: you know, sure you're going to want to go in and bet on the 49ers to beat the Raiders. Sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. My guest today is Ukiah attorney Les Marston. We're talking about his uh, his court victory, or the victory by his clients, Hopland, Band of Pomo Indians, and Robinson Rancheria, among others, so a local case that has national implications for tribes across the country, uh, and that was a, a Ninth District Court of Appeals ruling that found the state of California has been negotiating in bad faith with the five tribes around their Indian gaming compacts. So, what's next for for this struggle? You said it's going to go back to the district court judge and and maybe go into um, into a mediation, but what about the politics of it?
1: Well, first of all, because the Secretary of Interior has now taken the position that she's not going to approve any gaming compact or amendment to any gaming compact unless th- that compact complies with the Ninth Circuit's ruling. It's going to the the Secretary has been rejecting compacts here in California. Um, uh, it's interesting that just yesterday the governor announced that he reached agreement with two tribes, Tahitan and Santa Rosa, and so he's going to be submitting those compacts uh, back to the secretary for approval. Uh, I I just found out about that yesterday. I kind of glanced through. And uh, so the governor did two things. He he dropped two of the provisions, the, the spousal support and the child support provisions out of those compacts, but he kept the other compacts. He he massaged them a little bit, uh, but kept them in there. So it'll be interesting to see when those compacts go back to the secretary whether the secretary affirmatively disapproves them. My tribes are in the pro or the tribes that I represent, and and, and I do want to say. That while I'm the lead attorney, this is, you know, I'm part of a team of attorneys that work out of my office. Local attorneys, Cooper DeMars, Ashley Burrell, Scott Johnson, my nephew, uh, Coastal Lothores, who has his his law office in Las Vegas, and my son, Nick Marston, who just took his bar exam, but has been working in my office as a research associate. You know, we're all local attorneys. Uh, I don't, there's no, there's no, There's no chiefs. We're all braves. We all work together. So I want to give them a little bit of credit. Um, But we're working right now on uh, what we call uh, a model compact. Um, if, If we're successful in getting back to the secretary and the secretary adopts our compact, it's my hope that the other California tribes are going to look at that compact and say, I want that compact. I want that same compact. And then we'll stick to their guns and tell the state, we want the same compact that Blue Lake and Robinson and Hoplin and Chimewavy and Chicken Ranch got. You know, they got all these things. I want them too. And, And if the governor doesn't give it to them, that they sue, just like the five tribes did so that the, you know, so that the, playing field will get leveled across the state and we'll have a u- uniform set of regulations that will apply to all the tribes throughout the state of California.
0: All right. And what do, how does this model compact what, what does it look like? What is it? In, what are the provisions that you make sure are in there that are going to protect the tribes from what you called mission creep by the state of California to come into to reservations and, you know, do, win the turf war, basically?
1: Well, the first, you know, if, if, if you're, uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you got to like this compact, right? Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So uh, this compact allows the tribe to operate an, un, uh, an unlimited number of games, right? in other words it's free enterprise it's market driven the governor wanted to put a cap on the number of of games they could play oh you can only play have so many black jack tables you can only have so many slot machines and we're like why governor i mean isn't the purpose for it, for us to be able to generate revenue to fund our government shouldn't we be allowed just like any other business in the state of california to be able to uh, adjust our business to market conditions the governor said no but this compact will say, yes, we're going to be able to operate uh, uh, an unlimited number of, of games uh, based upon market conditions. Now, will that mean there'll be this huge increase in gambling within the state? No. I mean, let's just take Robinson, for example, right? Uh, they've, they're operating about 349 machines, Okay. That, that's about what their, uh, that meets market demands. Uh, the governor wanted to say they had to operate those 349 machines for the next 20 years. Now, you know, hopefully Lake County will grow, population bases will grow, and as the county grows and they get more patrons in their casino, they'll be able to expand, you know. They'll go from you know three forty nine to then you know you know four hundred you know maybe get up to five hundred but that's about what their you know it gives them the opportunity to expand their market. The other thing that the governor wanted to do is he said, "Well, you can only operate those games at two locations on your reservation." And we were like, "What? You know, because uh, Blue Lake, for example, it has its land based casino." And then it has its uh, gas station and and a couple other places where it could place machines. So this compact will allow them to do that, more flexibility.
0: Just to have more agency in how they run their businesses. Exactly. All right. Well, Les, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I'm excited that we had the chance to really um, dive in and understand both the conditions that gave rise to this legal fight and also what this victory in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals means. And um, I look forward to seeing what happens next.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. I'm going to get out of here, but I'll be back in two weeks Have a great weekend.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, ninety point seven FM. KZYZ, Willits and ninety one point five FM. And Fort Bragg at eighty eight point one FM. Thanks for listening. Out of my mind.